Does someone have some questions to start a discussion with? Yeah. Uh, yesterday, uh, during this time discussion, you mentioned about um, mindful for the body, and mm-hmm. also you mentioned also have mindfulness to mental mm-hmm. increase uh, uh, explain for the mindfulness for mental. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, with the four applications of mindfulness, <coughs> mindfulness of the body is the first one. And the second one is mindfulness of feelings. And the third one is uh, uh, mindfulness of mental states. And the fourth one is it's mindfulness of, of dharmas as dharmas, which means, and dharma has different meanings, but essentially a dharma is a mental object but dharma also means uh, truth and reality. So essentially what the fourth application of mindfulness is mindfulness of reality as consisting of mental objects, or to put it another way, mindfulness of reality as mind created. So we begin with uh, the, the first, which we talked about yesterday, is the practice of mindfulness of the body, or actually it's called mindfulness of the body as body. And the word kaya, which means, which we translate as body, has two meanings, aggregate and body. So we could say it's mindfulness of the body as an aggregate, as an aggregate of parts, as an aggregate of sensations, uh, as an aggregate in many sense, in many senses. The mental ones, the second one is very straightforward mindfulness of feelings as feelings. And by this, we don't mean emotional feelings or sensations, of course. It means uh, feelings of pleasant, unpleasant, or neither pleasant nor unpleasant. So in this practice, it means being aware of the uh, feeling of pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral that arises in association with each experience. So, for example, when you're practicing mindfulness of the body and there is some bodily experience, it's accompanied by a feeling of pleasant or unpleasant. Also, each mental object will have a pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. Likewise, each mental object that arises in your mind, a thought, an idea, a memory, an emotion, will be accompanied by an experience of it as being pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. Now, one of the things that is interesting is that uh, sometimes the feeling produced by a safe sensation is different than the feeling produced by the mental object that arises because of that sensation. So if you do the practice of mindfulness of the feelings, this is one of the things that you become aware of. First of all, in the practice, it takes a little while just to be able to catch the feeling that's present. 
And it may seem like, well, there's some feelings that are unpleasant, there's some, some experiences that are unpleasant, and some that are pleasant, of course, but there's a huge number of experiences that, yeah, they're neither pleasant nor unpleasant. As you do this practice, though, you begin to be aware of subtler shades of pleasant and unpleasant. And so this category in the middle of neither pleasant nor unpleasant starts to become smaller and smaller as you, as your mindful awareness is capable of recognizing the pleasantness and unpleasantness associated with each kind of experience. This is the first thing. Then you begin to have a distinction that when there, when there is a sensation, the sensation will trigger the arising of some kind of a mental object, a perception, or sometimes a, a memory or something else. And sometimes the uh, feeling, pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, of the sensation is not the same as the feeling, pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, of the mental object that arises immediately. And at first, you, uh, we don't notice these things, but after a while you start to notice when they're different. For example, um, a sensation may be inherently pleasant, but if it's produced by someone that you're angry at, you may experience it, uh, you may have an experience of unpleasant. So one is downstream from the other. The very first sensation, that's pleasant. But then as the mind perceives the uh, origins of the sensation, and if there is a negative association with that, then associated with the mental object is an unpleasant association. Yes? Uh, could it be possible that uh, there are both pleasant and unpleasant sensations simultaneously uh, from one feeling? Uh, not really. Not at the same time? Not at the same time. It could be one moment pleasant and the other moment pleasant. Uh, well, it, that is possible. And an example would be that um, something that is warm, not hot, but something that is warm, if you are, if your body is cold and you come in contact with that warm thing, it's pleasant. On a different occasion, uh, if you are hot already and you come in contact with that thing exactly the same temperature and you experience it as unpleasant, mm-hmm. So, in that regard, you would say, okay, the same, the same thing, warmth, is experienced as pleasant on one occasion and unpleasant on another occasion, depending upon the state of the body. So, there are, there are circumstances where that is true. But not at the same time. But not at the same time. Because when I go to like, uh, the Chinese acupuncture, the acupressure doctor, uh, Originally, it's extremely painful, but somehow the mind turns it into pleasure. <laughs> okay, well, this is the other thing that I'm talking about. What your mind turns it into is can be different than what is inherent in the sensation itself. Uh-huh. Uh, and it's a, a sensation has its own quality of pleasant and unpleasant. 
what the mind turns it into. This would be another example. There may be a sensation that is unpleasant, but because that intrinsically is unpleasant. You know, in in its own nature, by itself, just as a sensation, it is unpleasant rather than pleasant. But because of our mental association with it, we experience it as pleasurable. Right? We experience pleasantness associated with it. But that's two different things. I see. It's uh, it's the sensation, and then there is the uh, uh, mental object that arises as a result of that. So. Um, there are there are things that we acquire a taste for, for example. Mm. You know, you give a child a taste of something, it's ah, that's horrible. Mm. But you say, oh, no, 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 it's delicious, it's ah. wonderful. Um, something that is, uh, well, I don't need to go further, but mm. in examples, but you get the idea. Okay, so when you... Uh, as you begin to be discerning in your uh, mindful awareness of pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral, you begin to see that uh, what the what the, the the sensation itself and the uh, uh, what the mind produces in response to the perception can be different. They can be the same. And they can reinforce it. So uh, one's pleasant, the other's pleasant, and you have a strongly pleasant experience. Or one's unpleasant, and, and the uh, mental perception also produces a sense of unpleasantness, and so it's very unpleasant. But they can also be different. Pleasant and neutral, unpleasant and neutral, pleasant and unpleasant at the same time. But you find that one comes and then the other comes afterwards, and uh, you you see the nature of that and you begin to understand the relationship between them. Since so much of what determines our behavior is our perception of pleasant and and unpleasant, uh, through this practice we begin to see how important feeling is in terms of the totality of who we are and how we behave and our mental states. You have you have an experience, it's either pleasant or unpleasant. It brings up mental associations and they are either pleasant or unpleasant. This will end up affecting your mental state. When it's pleasant, it gives rise to a state of uh, some form of desire. And when it is unpleasant, it creates a mental state, uh, some kind of aversion. And so this is the third application of mindfulness, is to be mindful of your mental states as they arise and pass away. You have mental states of desire and you have mental states of aversion. And you have mental states of... uh, uh, confusion or delusion. So the this third application of mindfulness is knowing when desire is present and when it's not, and when aversion is present and when it's not, and when confusion is present and when it's not. 
So it's part of the mental state, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, and desire. Uh, the, the feelings are pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. The uh-huh. mental state is a different thing. Oh, it's a different thing. I, I the see. mental state, a mental state of desire, you will enter into a state of desire as a result of pleasant, of the occurrence of pleasant feelings. And that's why it's important to, to practice being aware of these things as, as different. Pleasantness and desire are not the same thing. So uh, the feeling consists of both physical and mental pleasant, uh, unpleasant, neutral. Okay. Right, and they can they can either correspond to each other or be different from each other. Okay. Right. I see. Thank you. So something that is inherently pleasant, but you have a, a clear understanding that it is not beneficial to you, uh, that understanding may cancel out the. Uh, uh, pleasantness of it, or it may not. Yes? And um, what does neutral relate to, or correspond to? That's, uh, there are experiences we have which are neither pleasant nor unpleasant. And the mental state? Now, mental state, you have three kinds of feelings, and uh, which may be either physical or mental. Mental states is a different thing, and there's not a direct correspondence. Okay. Mental states, uh, in, in the formal description of the mental states in the sutras, uh, it, uh, it's certain specific categories, but I'll speak in a more general sense. What, what we normally refer to as emotions are mental states. And now these things inter, interact with each other. Just the body uh, and the feel, the bodily experiences and feelings and mental states. Because, uh, as we have already seen, uh, experiences of the body, sensations, will produce feelings of pleasant or unpleasant, and then also following in chain immediately after that are the, the mental experiences, which are also pleasant and unpleasant. This will determine your mental state. One type of mental state is, uh, is, is joy. And if you, have, if you have a series of pleasant experiences, they will result in a positive mental state. Right? Or if you have a single very strong pleasant experience, it can create a strong mental state of joy. And when I say a mental state uh, that we call joy, this is a mental state where, first of all, you don't see, hear, feel everything that's present in the moment. Your mind makes selections. When you walk into a room, you don't see everything that's there. There's always selecting taking place. If you are in a joyful mental state, your mind automatically selects those things that are pleasant and beautiful and good and wholesome and ignores things that are unpleasant and ugly and wholesome and so forth. There's this tendency, it's not absolute, of course. I mean, that would be uh, 
I be careful my words here, you know, I, I, I'm not going outside the realm of common experience. So it would be very unusual to have a mental state that would prevent you totally from being aware of something that was unpleasant or ugly. But in general, if you're in a joyful mental state, you tend to see and feel and hear and think those things that are positive and pleasant. And that will reinforce the pleasant mental state that you're having. It also affects the feelings that you have. If you are in a joyful state of mind, something that is mildly pleasant will become strongly pleasant. Something that otherwise might be neutral will be mildly pleasant. Something that might be otherwise mildly unpleasant will be neutral. Something that might otherwise be strongly unpleasant will be mildly unpleasant. You know this from experience. You have those states of mind, joyful states of mind. So when we have a number of pleasant experiences or pleasant thoughts, we enter into a joyful state of mind. And we see the beauty of our surroundings, and we enjoy the pleasantness of being, being a breathing, living being, and uh, we, we take in more pleasant feeling that reinforces this state. Right? Examples, you know, uh, you get some really good news. Something, what's an example? Well, picture a, a young man, he's had this uh, crush on this young woman for a long time, and he finds out she feels the same way that he does, right? He's in a joyful state of mind, yes? And everything is wonderful. And even the bad things don't bother him. Right? That's a real, that's a good example. You can see it very clearly there. It alters the perception of feeling. And it affects the kind of selectivity in perception or selectivity in what is attended to and observed. Yes? So, you know, meditation in the case with the, uh, the this, uh, this descriptions um, from the people who have a jhana experience, they find everything is uh, so beautiful and perfect. When meditative, when meditative joy arises, yes, because meditative joy is, is a men- that same kind of mental state. It's not different than the joy that comes from good news or other things like that. And it has exactly the same effect when a person experiences that joy then everything is beautiful and, you know, most of you know exactly what that's like, right? So, yeah, that's exactly it. It reinforces itself. Now, of course, the other thing is true, too. When you have a series of unpleasant experiences, they create a completely different mental state, right? Opposite effects. You only see what's painful and ugly. And... If something is a little bit painful, you experience it as very painful. And even sometimes that which is pleasant, you can't, you're separated from the pleasantness of it and you experience it as neutral. So mental states, mental states are, you know, they they, they last for a while and they have a profound effect on what you attend to and the feelings that you associate with them. 
and also your perceptions. Um, Every kind of mental state. A desire is a mental state. You know, they say that uh, uh, that uh, you know, for uh, for a thief on the street, all he sees is other people's pockets. You know, are you? <laughs> when we're in a state of desire. Our mind goes over and over again to that which we desire. The pleasantness associated with the thoughts of the desire become enormously exaggerated. And the desire grows strong, grows stronger as a result. Right? Any, any kind of, this, this is a general thing that's true about mental states of desire. They make themselves stronger through this kind of feedback of, you know, you. Every time you, you, you see or hear or think or whatever about the object of the desire, it produces a pleasant sensation and the desire goes stronger. It also affects the perceptions. The perceptions become very distorted. When you desire something strongly, uh, it starts to become uh, the, the best and only of its kind. It starts to become perfect. It takes on qualities that it couldn't possibly possess in reality. And of course, this as well leads to disappointment later on because this is all just a projection of the mind. But it is a result of a state of desire, a state of anger. That's another mental state, ill will, aversion, anger. And the, the same thing. When, when we begin, this is something we experience very often in our lives, that something produces irritation or impatience, and that grows. And uh, that can end up producing a state of anger, and anger can grow into hatred. The mental state becomes stronger. If you look at what happens, though, in the process of that, what does the mind go to over and over again? And how does it perceive what it goes to? And what are the feelings, pleasant and unpleasant, that uh, arise? You know, that person uh, uh, is angry at someone else, and maybe they think of that person, and a very unpleasant feeling arises. And then they think of punching that person, a very pleasant feeling arises. <laughs> Just as a, a you know, a, a for instance here, right? So, the mindfulness of mental states is a very important part of practice, especially when it's combined with uh, mindfulness of sensations and mindfulness of feelings, because then we come, it brings us to a place of understanding of, uh, of what's going on, why we are the way we are, why we behave the way we do, why we go through the changes that we do. And, of course, we can distinguish between wholesome and unwholesome mental states, and we can distinguish between the causes. Uh, we can also practice uh, guarding the senses when we see through mindfulness of the body uh, what leads to various kinds of uh, mental states, wholesome and unwholesome, then it gives us some means of, of uh, uh, determining 
the nature of the mental states that we enter into. And when we see the nature of the thoughts that are generated and how they sustain and reinforce the mental states, then we can learn to uh, sustain wholesome mental states that have arisen and uh, uh, remove unwholesome mental states that that have arisen. You can replace desire with generosity, anger with patience and compassion. Yes? The question I asked you uh, yesterday afternoon about your working, is it, uh, I think it's mental, uh, is mindfulness in mental? Mindfulness is mental, yes. Right, yeah, that's right. Yeah, it's, mindfulness is that knowing, that knowing of what's really going on and seeing it clearly. Yeah. So, and you can be mindful of sensations but that's but the mindfulness itself is still mental in its in its nature it's the knowing it's the clear understanding yeah but I tell you it's a little tight maybe take a long time will be easier mm-hmm. yeah. yeah so um, the Final one, the fourth application of mindfulness. This really, the mindfulness of the dharmas and the dharmas, or mindfulness of uh, uh, mental objects as mental objects, or the way that I prefer to put it is mindfulness of reality as mind created, has to do with perceptions and mental formations. Because Whatever mental object arises in your mind, it is the uh, it is the result of the karmic formations in your mind. We've already talked about that before, and both uh, both long term and also immediate. So, when to take any of the examples that we talked about. When you've had certain kinds of sensations and certain kinds of feelings as a result, and it's produced a certain kind of mental state, then this is going to have so much to do with the kinds of perceptions that you experience. And this is going to be the reality that you find yourself in. You find yourself in a reality that's created by the... uh, the coming together of your previous conditioning, your karma, your present mental states, and the perceptions and feelings that your mental states cause the mind to be directed towards and predisposed to. Do you see that? Is that clear? Is that not true? And this is, this is a very valuable insight and understanding to have because it helps to shift us out of that uh, wrong view that uh, this world, this reality is, 
it has it's substantially real from its own side, and it is the way I perceive it to be, and I am a sense substantially real self, and the experience that I'm having of this reality is dependent on both who and what I am substantially and what the uh, objects of my experience are substantially. And this helps us to remove that and realize that no, this is not the case. That even what we happen to see is determined by our karma and our mental state. Because we could be seeing all kinds of things. And two people in the same place, one sees one thing and says, isn't that beautiful? And the other says, sees something else and says, isn't that ugly? So even the objects that appear to us uh, as that which makes up our experience are, are selected and determined in this way. And then we, we say that this makes me feel good or that makes me feel bad as if the source of the pleasantness and the unpleasantness lay within the thing. And it's your fault that I feel this way or it's the fault of this thing, or it's the inherent property of this thing that it gives me pleasure. And that's not true. The Vedna, the pleasantness, unpleasantness, and neutrality is actually a product of the mind. If we go back to those things themselves, we've already seen that that which, a sensation which is inherently unpleasant can be associated with a mental experience of pleasure. Right? That's one of the things you discover through the practice of uh, mindfulness of feelings. And if you know this, and you apply it to your reality, you, you realize that indeed, no matter what I take pleasure from, or whatever I experience uh, suffering from, that it's my mind is playing the predominant role in this. That there is a very limited role. Yes, there are things that are inherently pleasant, and yes, there are things that are inherently painful. But the actual experience that I have, and the texture of that experience in terms of, of good and bad, is coming from my mind. And even, even the inherent painfulness can be completely counteracted by the mind. Even the inherent pleasantness can be completely counteracted by the mind. So we, we see that in, in, indeed the reality is mind-created, that the Vedana, the in, inherent Vedana, the inherent, uh, Vedana is the word that means feeling in Pali, sorry, sometimes I lapse into Pali, so excuse me when I do that, but uh, the feeling, the inherent feeling is not what ultimately determines the experience, it's the it's the mental feeling. Which is why we can say that life inherently consists of pleasant and unpleasant experiences. There is pain and pleasure in life. But suffering and happiness are optional and they are up to us. And they are dependent upon choices that we make. So. Pain is inevitable, suffering is optional. So, 
when you discover that the reality that you exist in is mind created and you begin to practice that awareness, uh, then comes two things. Understanding, wisdom, and you stop holding on to wrong views. But at the same time, you also see that you have the means within your power to alter the nature of your experience. You don't need to focus on the negative. You can focus on the positive. And you don't need to allow uh, unwholesome mental states to persist. You can choose to always move towards the wholesome. And that when you realize that the nature of your perception is conditioned by, uh, is the result of your past conditioning, karma, and you realize that what you do in each moment, the way that you react to the situation in the present moment, is going to determine the experience that you have in the future. You can't change the past. And so if you've conditioned yourself such that you are in this moment filled with anger or in this moment filled with lust, accept that, work with that, do what you can with that. But you don't need to continue to create yourself as that kind of being. That you you have the option to make a completely different kind of karma. And so this, these are the these are the four practices of uh, the four applications of mindfulness. They some places you'll come across them and they're taught as though there's something that you only do in sitting meditation. You know, somebody will tell you that well Vipassana meditation, that's the practice of the four applications of mindfulness. That it consists entirely of what you do when you're sitting with your legs crossed and your eyes closed. And that's a very unfortunate interpretation because the greatest power of this, uh, uh, of the four applications of mindfulness, of the Satipatthana, probably one of the most powerful of all of the teachings in the sutras is the Satipatthana. And it's most powerfully applied if you learn to do it in your daily life. If you learn to do it more or less continuously all the time. If you just start to become mindfully aware of sensations, perceptions, or sensations, feelings, mental states, and perceptions and the relationships between them. Insight, insight comes forth like light bulbs coming on as you do this. Yes. So when you said it's the, uh, there's misunderstanding, take the vipassana, only uh, awareness of the mind state, but actually it's insight is about everything. Yeah. Insight is about everything. What I'm saying is that if you think in terms of doing this practice only when you're sitting, mm-hmm. you're missing out. Because most of the opportunities to really understand how this works come out in the world in the kind of examples that I gave you. It's when you sit down to do something in the morning and you find your attempts to do it frustrated and you feel irritability arising in you and you can see that and you can see the mental state and you can continue to be aware of that and see what its consequences are 
in terms of how it affects the next experience you have and your reaction to the next person that you talk to, and so on and so forth. That's that's when the that's much more powerful insight and understanding than what just if you were only limited to what you can see in meditation, then you're not fully utilizing satipatthana. So. Yes. I'm still very fascinated by, but not quite clear about the, um, the consciousness awareness you said. It's easy to understand that mm-hmm. our mind or our, our awareness can be mindful of some uh, action or feeling. But if we take the mind as a whole, as an object, how can the function of the, just a function of the mind, which is a consistent uh, awareness, can fully comprehend the mind itself? Can can take the mind as this uh, object of concentration. You're still talking in the context of what we've just been talking about here? Not really. No, okay. Yeah. So, how can conscious awareness yeah. uh, understand the mind as a whole? Yeah. Uh, conscious awareness leads to understanding. But conscious awareness, it's the the mind as the thinking, uh, rational, associating, remembering, feeling machine that understands. Conscious awareness is what we can use to cause the mind to gain understanding. And that's the power of insight is it's exercised by watching, observing, by just noticing. That's what produces, that's what is most powerful in producing the change. Um, And that's why, although in some ways analytical thinking is very useful, you don't ever want to interrupt the practice of mindfulness to engage in analytical thinking, because the practice of mindfulness feeds the information into the mind as a whole, and it allows that information to produce changes in in, uh, the way the mind works, and not just the conscious, conceptual, intellectual, discursive level, but at all levels. So, by being mindfully aware of these things that I just talked about, you can analyze them and see, aha, this, uh, this leads to that, and that leads to that, and these two things are connected. But you don't actually, and that's helpful, but you don't actually ever have to engage in that. If you were to do nothing but be mindful of the body, be mindful of the feelings, be mindful of the mental states, recognizing them. Uh, and of course, recognizing the temporal association. That this mental state arises uh, subsequent to these feelings, and this mental state changes into that mental state 
when these sensations and feelings intervene. And this perceptual experience occurs in this mental state, and that mental, uh, perceptual experience occurs in a different mental state. All you need to do is observe those things, and the understanding will come from that. So it's not that mindfulness or conscious awareness is doing the understanding. Mindfulness, conscious awareness is, is allowing that understanding to take place. And the insight that we have, when you have insights, insights tend to uh, emerge suddenly as a, as a crystallization out of the experience that you're having. It's like, aha, <laughs> I can see. Now I can see why this is happening this way. And you let them accumulate. Insight accumulates as a result of the practice of mindfulness. It can be assisted and reinforced and encouraged uh, through uh, analytical and discursive thinking. And this is useful. This is valuable. Also, it plays a very important role in pointing out. Because what I'm trying to to do with you, having a a discussion, a discursive uh, process, a shared discursive process with you, is to point out the things that you can, uh, so that you can practice the mindfulness, but because these are already pointed out, because the seeds are already there in your mind in terms of concepts and in terms of the relationships between them, because we followed some of these things step by step, to, this is how this leads to this, this leads to this. That leaves a seed in your mind that will bring bring birth to insight more rapidly. If you go and practice the mindfulness, then the seed will be, uh, will, will come into uh, fruition as the actual insight into, yes, that's the way it is. And the actual insight has so much more power than the intellectual understanding. Because as long as it stays at the level of intellectual understanding of, oh yeah, my, uh, my, uh, the things that happen to me create my moods, you know. Well, that really doesn't get you much further ahead than where you were before. But it can function as the seed to lead to a direct insight that will change the way that your mind works. And you can use this in all kinds of ways. The practice of daily reflection gives you an opportunity to look at what has occurred during the day and examine it mindfully. And that information will produce a change at the deeper levels of of your mind from which your behavior and your attitudes arise, from which the mental state. It will work at the level of mental formations, which will then reverberate back through mental states and uh, perceptions of mental states and feelings and selectivity of experience. Uh, and, and this is what you want it to do. So, you know, a person who has a problem with anger, if they simply practice becoming mindful of anger when it arises and see it not as I am angry, but here is this emotion of anger arising out of causes and conditions. And they see how it arises, that 
Well, there's this little thing, and it produces this feeling, and this little thing, and it produces this feeling, and this little thing, and it produces this feeling. And the feeling triggers the mental state, and the mental state is in a mild form, and then it becomes stronger, and then it becomes stronger. But most importantly, when the mental state is there, they see, ah, the feeling associated with this is unpleasant. Anger is not a good thing. Anger makes me feel bad. And the continuation of mindfulness notices that anger not only makes me feel bad, makes me say this kind of thing, makes somebody else feel bad. And later on, because that person feels bad, they do or say something to me, and I end up feeling bad all over again. When this information is made available through mindful awareness, what the effect you see is that you start to... The, you have mindfulness that anger is arising, and instead of continuing to build up like a thunderstorm, it dissipates and fades away when the mindfulness comes. And you repeat that often enough with the same recognition, and you, you don't even have the initial clouds of the thunderstorm there. You know, as soon as you recognize irritability and annoyance arising, it's like, oh, I know that whole story. You just let go of it and go on your way. So, if you're still on the same thing, I'd like to. No, uh, so, uh, if the um, <clears throat> mental formation or feeling, this kind of uh, thing, ceases, stops, Thoughts, yes. Okay, then, which is in the uh, absorptive state, the jhanas. Mm-hmm. So the mindful awareness, we don't have to use it anymore, right? So it's only the concentration left. So in the third jhana? Well, in, in the jhana, the mindful awareness is focused, is very, very focused on one specific thing, and things are not changing. And, but, it provides, the mindful awareness provides a profound recognition. Uh, it's ex- it, since nothing really happens in the jhana, it's exercised in the coming out of the jhana and the re-entering of jhana in terms of the awareness of what is present, what ceases to be present, and what re-emerges again. So going through the jhanas is like dissecting the mind. It's like, here is the mind. Okay, and it's very confusing, it's very complex. But if you remove one whole layer and you see, ah, this is what's left. And then you remove the whole next layer and say, ah, this is what's left. And in the process of doing that repeatedly, this is the relationship of this layer to the ones underneath. And this is the relationship of what is underneath and the impact that it has on the layers outside of it. And you see, you know, in that way, through the dissection, the same way that, you know, dissecting a frog, you can come to understand how the physiology of the frog allows it to live and, you know, uh, uh, survive underwater and survive on land and do all this kind of thing. It's the same way the dissection of the mind through jhana. But just as to, to sort of use, it's not really a very good example, but 
uh, you have to take what you find in the dissected frog and translate it to what you have in the live frog before it makes sense. Right? So the same way, in the frozen state of the jhana, what is observed there has to be understood in the unfrozen state where the jhana is not present. But specifically, in the first jhana, we still have the applied attention and sustained attention, which means it's a still object. Means the which? Which means we still have an object there. You still have an object, that's so correct. So the, the mindful awareness is still applies. Yes. In the first the mindful awareness still applies in all of the other jhanas as well. As well. Uh, conscious awareness. There is conscious awareness in every jhana. You mean the four jhanas? Yes. Uh, the, 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 uh, well, the exception comes to be in the eighth jhana, where there's still conscious awareness, but there's no uh, rising of perception. So. But in the, yes, in all of the other jhanas, there is conscious awareness. Okay. So, yes. Yeah, in fact, my, my question is kind of related. Um, and I understand that um, you talk about four applications for this mindfulness awareness. You need to put a lot of part in the daily life. Mm-hmm. I'm just thinking about how meditate uh, setting we can enhance. Yeah. that for the daily activity. So far, I kind of have a question is that through the meditate, sitting meditate, are we go through more shamatha uh, practice to, to increase more, uh, through the concentration, increase, increase more mindful awareness to apply? Or sitting meditate, we also designate part of the observe, observation, mm-hmm. you know, it, that can help more for the daily activity. Uh, Yes. Both are both are true, and the best way to meditate is that both are taking place. What happens, of course, to 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 say practice the four applications of mindfulness in daily life. Wonderful idea, but it is without meditation, it's almost impossible to do. You need meditation to develop the stability of attention and the mindful awareness to be able to actually do this. Because otherwise, it's, you know, uh, you're you're caught in this raging storm of turbulence, of things happening and emotions and ideas arising and passing away experiences. So unless you've cultivated the mental stability and the mindful awareness, you have no hope. Uh, And so you really can't practice the four applications of mindful awareness until you've done enough meditation to develop these things. But the other side of it is that as soon as you sit down and meditate, you have an opportunity to practice it in a way that is much simpler and slower and more confined than in daily life. You sit down and you find you have you have sensations and mental objects arising and you have feelings in response to them arising. And you have mental states occurring in your in your meditation practice, and we've talked a lot about that. You know, you have you have uh, thoughts arising, and it's disrupting your meditation. And you have and, and you experience it as unpleasant. 
And it's not the plot pots themselves that are unpleasant, it's that you wanted to be focused on the meditation object and these thoughts keep arising. So that makes them unpleasant, you can see that. And then you find yourself getting into uh, a mental state where you're attached to a particular outcome and you're annoyed at your mind for doing this, right? And you see that how that affects your meditation. So you should be practicing the four applications of mindfulness when you meditate. And then if you do, then you know you start to bridge the gap that you're out there doing something in the world and a parallel situation comes up and you recognize it because you've watched it, you've been through it in meditation and then this allows you to see it. And the same thing, things happen in the world that you're not quite able to grasp the full mindfulness until you go and sit down in meditation and then something similar happens where you're fully able to grasp it and then you can take that back and say, oh, I can see this, you know, this is why every time I go and talk to this person, you know, blah, 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 it's because it's the same process taking in your mind, taking place in your mind that you've uncovered in meditation. Because, and, and that's why, you know, if you could if you could find some uh, secret to practice that would allow you to sit down and immediately enter into uh, perfect concentration, you'd miss out on all that. And that's an important thing to understand. And one of the problems that many people, that, that is that many people don't realize that. And they sit down in meditation, they're totally focused on the goal. I've got to get to concentration. And they don't see all of the things, all of the lessons, all of the insights that are being presented to them along the way. And so even if, even if I knew a magic answer, you know, so that somebody could come to a meditation retreat and 10 minutes after you got here, I'd make you capable of perfect concentration, it wouldn't really do you a favor. The process of developing that yourself gives you an opportunity to learn and discover. Then had come up the other question. Um, for my own experience, I feel like uh, I almost need to designate separate, and I even cannot plan it because you know the uh, the, the meditation come out you know simultaneously the after. But I almost feel like uh, if um, if we I want to practice uh, uh, shamatha, you know those feelings come out or the thoughts come mm-hmm. out. For my understanding, mm-hmm. is okay, I recognize and I come back. Not even pay attention. Okay. Then if I want to pay attention to that, then it's hard for me to get into the, 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 the shamatha because I'm kind of that. So I almost need to uh, uh, you know do this, cannot do that, or, or only this finish and in between and the other thousand come and I, I watch this and, and, and then also you know, so is is that should be different um, the sitting practice or, or something can combine that's uh, always possible. You're talking about well when, when you're sitting down your primary concern can be shamatha mm-hmm. or your primary concern can be observing your mind and, and, and practicing mindful awareness. Yes. Uh, and It should actually be both. 
even when you're practicing shamatha and even when mindful awareness isn't your primary goal, you'll still be practicing mindful awareness. You'll still be, you know, and, and if you're if you're practicing shamatha properly, uh, you need introspective awareness of what's going on in your mind. You need to be aware of what's going on in your mind just to make the corrections to bring your focus uh, to the place that it needs to be, right? Mm-hmm. And if that's the case, then it is the opportunity to uh, to recognize things that are taking place. It doesn't need to be your if your if your primary concern is shamatha, then of course that won't be your primary concern. It will just be a side benefit that's coming along the way. And uh, if 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 things go the way you'd like them to during that sit, your shamatha will deepen and there will be fewer distractions, which means fewer opportunities to see the way your mind interacts with those. On a different occasion, you can sit down and say, well, mainly what I'm going to do is watch my mind. And that's fine too. But even while you're watching your mind, you need to develop a certain amount of concentration. So they're never really separate. It's just a difference in emphasis. And the deeper you go into shamatha, the less space there is for just observing body and feelings and mental states and and, and uh, perceptions. And the more fully you go into mindful awareness, the less you're going to experience. Uh, single-pointedness, because mindful awareness needs to have something to work on. Mm-hmm. And so you're not going to have the same uh, degree of uh, single-pointedness and the same intensity of joy and so forth. But you alternate them and you combine them. Yeah. You, you don't need to be exclusively one or exclusively the other. I appreciate that. And which one, which way is more efficient? <laughs> I'm sorry, could I ask efficient or not? Okay, is that, um, is that when I study, if the thoughts come and I just focus on thought, or I, I, I do the shamatha, the, get to the a certain concentration first, then open to like a Mahamudra, you know, the, a, just minimum level, uh, can that then open that to watch all the thoughts or feeling and that or I can watch that in the beginning which way is more efficient it's going to it's going to be different at different times and overall different individuals are going to have sort of a different overall orientation but you need to go with what's happening right now. So you decide, you know, you you decide what you're going to do. You say, okay, I'm going to do shamatha. But if you find that that's not what's happening today, mm-hmm. then you know you go with what's happening today. Mm-hmm. And it's not like there's separate practices, and you say, okay, I'm going to stop doing that, and I'm going to start doing this. Mm-hmm. It's just if you don't find yourself easily moving into single-pointed focus, then you do what's in front of you, right? So and you might sit down and say, well, I'm going to do, uh, I'm, I'm going to uh, practice uh, spacious awareness and uh, uh, just simply observe anything that comes and goes in the mind. Instead, you find your mind just wants to go 
zero in and become very... So that's what's happening today. We don't fight against it, try to change it. And some people are going to be predisposed to get better results and be happier with doing a larger proportion of one than the other. So there's not a, there's, I can't give you one answer and say, well, this is, and that is a problem I see with some, what you do get from some meditation teachers and some uh, books and things like that, is they want to say, well, this is the way that you should do it. The other way is not a good way. And these are all the things that are wrong with it. You know? There should be more than one way to reach enlightenment, right? There's no one perfect way. Uh, certainly at the level of the actual techniques that we're employing to reach the goal, there shouldn't be. Yeah, yeah we shouldn't be, be afraid to try different things. That's right, you shouldn't be. And, uh, and there's a certain amount of experimentation that as you come to know and understand your mind in the process, you know, don't don't hesitate to Try things out. Don't don't get lost in it. If you see the progress of your practice stops because all you're doing is trying out different ways of doing things, well, that's not a good thing. But by all means, experiment. You know, uh, if you if you think there's a way to uh, to improve the quality of your practice, try it out and make a, a judgment. Talk to a teacher to make sure that you're not leading yourself down a, a false path. And the main false path you come to is when you mistake the signs of progress for real progress. You know, which if I could, if you could take a pill that puts you in a state of of, uh, of shamatha, that wouldn't be real progress. <laughs> but if we yeah. Okay, oh, I'm gonna. No, no, yeah. no, 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 that's it. No, 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 I didn't ask you any question. Okay. I have no questions. Thank you. <laughs> okay, then. okay, good. You, you, did, you have any more questions? Yeah, I get ease. <laughs> no, I keep struggle which one now I have very clear. Okay, Thank you. good. All right. Well, then, let's go and have lunch. Thank you very much. <laughs>